Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. any doubt in marriage the whole thing's built on faith if you've lost that well you've lost everything yes i suppose when that's gone the marriage is washed up isn't it do you mean that uh-huh. all right then that settles it oh, i guess it does i wouldn't go on living with you if you were dipped in platinum so go on divorce me go on divorce me it'll be a pleasure divorce you are you crazy do you think i dragged that music lover into court to show people the man you preferred to me all right oh. then i'll divorce you i believe it's customary anyhow for the wife to bring suit it has something to do with the husband being a gentleman if you know what i oh, mean oh never mind that stuff just get on with the divorce proceedings i can all hardly right. wait i'll call up our lawyer right now all right here if you don't mind my using him, and I don't know anyone else, you get around so much more than I do. Is that so? Hello? Hello, Lucy. What's that? Divorce? You and Jerry? Now, now, Lucy. Don't do anything in haste that you might regret later. Marriage is a beautiful thing, and you Why should give it every... Why can't we call you back after we've finished eating? Please be quiet, will you? Seem agitated, Lucy. Try and calm yourself. I hate to see you take any hasty action in a matter like this. Marriage is a beautiful Why thing. Why don't you finish your meal? Why can't they call you back later? Please shut your mouth. As I was saying, Lucy, marriage is a beautiful thing. And when you've been married as long as I have, you'll appreciate it, too. Your food is getting ice cold. You're always complaining about your food. Have will you, you shut your me? big mouth? I'll eat when I get good and ready, and if you don't like it, you know what you can do. So shut up. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Allinger. Hello. And also back in the booth is Mr. Aaron Peterson. Hello. I don't have an accent. That's embarrassing. Screwball Month continues with a look at Leo McCary's The Awful Truth. Based on the play by Arthur Wishman, the film stars Cary Grant. 
and Irene Dunn as Jerry and Lucy Warner, a couple who break up before the first act is even over. They would have had a clean break apart from them both wanting the custody of their dog, Mr. Smith, and that they both may still love one another. We are going to be ruining the awful truth as we go along, so if you haven't seen it, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Aaron, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? Uh, I saw this one when I was a kid. My mother was Adam. I think it was American Movie Classics at that time, back when they actually played classic movies that weren't Walking Dead. I remember watching it and asking her, so that's what marriage is like? (laughs) She's like, no, no, it's not. It's not at all. Uh, but I remember liking it because I was a big Cary Grant fan. I just I just loved how dapper he he always was at all times. And even though the plot was a little crazy, I I, I really loved the movie. It was just it's it's fun even if it's ridiculous. And there's a lot of movies from that era that are the plots are very ridiculous. So you kind of have to go with them. This is one of them. And Kat, how about yourself? So this again was probably like a TV watch, but Cary Grant was like a god in our house when I was growing up because Cary Grant, a.k.a. Archie Leach, is from Bristol, which is just down the road from me. And Bristol is it's this very sort of industrial dock city. Well, not anymore. It's been gentrified. But it used to be like very working class, very uh, docks orientated and um, in the southwest. And Cary Grant came out of there. And so my mother had this like weird sort of affinity with him, like we owned him or something, like he was one of us. And so any time, like she always be counts from Bristol, you know, he's from Bristol, like that, like somehow it's going to rub off on all of us. So I was like super aware of Cary Grant when I was, I don't know, for as long as I can remember, but I've always loved him. And this one is my favorite screwball of all the screwballs, even though I adore every screwball this one i probably watched more than any other screwball so that's where i base my ranking i i tend to come back to this one quite a lot i did show it to my son quite recently and it didn't have the same effect and i felt like i'd failed as a parent so there's that as well it's like he's not going to carry on the carry grant torch for us and uh yeah set the side down I don't remember when or where I saw this. I imagine it was probably TCM. And it's funny because I remembered a lot of the beginning, but then as the movie went along, I kind of had forgotten it. And then rewatching it the other day, I I was just struck by the pacing of this film is really odd. It is just kind of weird, like how Ralph Bellamy will come in and then he just kind of drops out. And then you get the introduction of another character and it was just yeah it's a it's a strange one i might be the spoiler on this episode because i i'm just like i'm not sure if i'd like this movie don't do it mike don't do it or i'll go off to rethink our friendship uh, don't say it don't you dare oh i don't know how you it's hard to not like Cary grant i mean his girl friday and it happened one night i mean he's just such a charismatic actor it's not Cary Grant, and it's definitely not Irene Dunn, and it's definitely not Mr. Smith, who is actually the same dog that played Asta. I was very surprised that it was the same dog, because I was like, boy, that guy looks like Asta a lot. And sure enough, and it's not Ralph Bellamy. It's no one in the cast. It's just the way that the film is structured just feels kind of strange. In the last act of it, the the last scene 
is really kind of off. I don't want to hear this. I, I mean, like I said, I, I firmly believe that these, the plots of these films, especially during this time, are almost nonsensical in many aspects. So it's kind of, but you just have to think of the era and it was still a little edgy. This plot, this whole, this whole concept is, is very edgy for the time. And, you know, it's also out there. Sure. Outlandish, but I, I think it, I think it works. Yeah. You might be the outlier on this one. I'm shocked. Maybe we'll convince you by the end that you were wrong. So this was the film, like in its favor, that really made Cary Grant, Cary Grant, because uh, people always think Cary Grant just sort of came out of Hollywood fully formed, but he was there for a long time and no one knew what to do with him. And he was just miscast. He was in these supporting roles. I know Mae West likes to claim she discovered him, but in... Next to Mae West, he's just a foil to Mae. He's just eye candy for Mae West. He doesn't really get to do anything with Mae West apart from look good on Mae West's arm, which is basically what she did with all the men she worked with, and I love her for it. He never really had, like, a persona in cinema. If you like, Some of his really early stuff is weird because he's, like, he's, if you've seen this, he's, like, really bland. He's, like, the love interest or, you know... And and he really found himself in Screwball. Topper come just before this, which I love. Topper's talking of bonkers, Owen's bonkers. But I think this is the one where he really comes into his own. Because one thing Cary Grant was so good at was this ridiculous sense of masculinity, which I think we've talked about on some of the other Screwball pods. We definitely talked about it on Ball of Fire. But this like petty jealousy, this this childish. I mean, he's so great when he's jealous. He was just in it, and and he looks so amazing. And you think he played the suave character, but he's always at his best where he's just making an absolute fool of himself, and he didn't care. He was just so good at that. How can you reject this film? He's at his most ridiculous here. The hat and the storming off and the fisticuffs and the just there's the stupid things that he does. I think he's so brilliant. I think this is one of his best films, his best comedy films. It's up there. I misspoke earlier. I said it happened when I'm that's that's Gable. I meant bringing up baby, but I'm an adamant Hitchcock fan. Right. So obviously I, I love his more dramatic work personally, but even in that he still has that the comedic instincts. I think he's just, he's an expert at making little things work, making little scenarios work. The The, the scene in this movie, and we'll get there. Yes. But when, the chair breaks, the, the physical comedy, when the chair breaks and he just kind of collapses and gets right, jumps right back up. I thought that was fantastic. And many actors of that time that weren't like, obviously from years earlier, Chaplin and whatnot, they just didn't, they didn't have that. He just, he just had that. He could still be just classy and, and sophisticated while also being kind of a bumbling idiot at times. I mean, not many actors could pull that off. Well, I'd love that he came from like an acrobatic background. So that physicality definitely plays into a lot of this stuff. Apparently he was not comfortable with this at first, just because there was so much ad libbing, but he finally embraced it and became a fantastic ad libber and was able to just roll that into his comedy. And yeah, I love that he is this guy who looks like a million bucks, but then can act just wonderfully foolish. And yeah, that bit with the hat and all that was, I love that physical comedy that's going on in there. 
just his facial expressions, like the the stares and the you know, and obviously he'd, he'd then sort of perfect that to something like um, his girl Friday. But it's just wonderful to see him come into this, like finally become Cary Grant. I love him in the Hitchcock stuff as well, though. But To Catch a Thief is so underrated. He's so funny in that as well. It's just more dry. He's just like very, very dry in that. But he's just so wonderful. And Irene Dunn, I think, is perfect with him. And my favourite wife, the one I talked to Mike about, we had this like confusion earlier (laughs) over, over another film. And I mentioned my favourite wife. Again, they, they've got a similar thing in that where she has been shipwrecked and he she turns up years later, he's shacked up with another woman, he's about to marry another woman. But the twist is she's been on this island with this beefcake and so Cary Grant is doing all the jealous things again in that. And I just think he was a real gift to cinema. Like, uh, Pauline Kale wrote this amazing essay on him called The Man from Dream City that really just summed up why like everybody either wanted to fuck him or be him but there was something so earnest about him as well because he was open to making a fool of himself that I I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't like Cary Grant like nobody ever how can you not just fall in love with him I love the opening of this film with him getting this quote-unquote deep Florida tan because he's He's been running around on her and this whole thing of like, he's running around on her. He comes home to surprise her and only to find that she hasn't spent the night at home. She's been out with this Lothario Armand Duval. I love again, we've got the foreign character kind of like Carlo from uh, my man Godfrey and this whole thing of them having this argument in front of their friends. It's not even really an argument. It's basically like, oh, well, I guess we're breaking up now. I mean, like I said, before the first act's even over, they are separating. But the only thing that is holding them together is the dog, is Mr. Smith. And I I really like the premise of this. Such a weird premise, though. (laughs) You have to admit, it's just so weird. And it it leaves it, though. It's Like Aaron said, it is kind of edgy because – it leaves things on this very ambiguous note as to whether they've been fucking around or not. And are they in some sort of weird open marriage? Like, what is going on there? Like, he's off pretending he's in Florida with his fake oranges and stuff. And he and he obviously does it. And it doesn't really tell you what he's been up to or what she's been up to. So it's it's very sly and it's very naughty. And I appreciate that. What wives don't know won't hurt you. It doesn't start off with these two kind of uh, like sickly Hollywood marriage types who are like, you know, it's it's basically two very modern people, two incredibly modern people, yet they're in 1937. So I just really love that. Even though it's kind of ridiculous, it's perfect. It's really perfect the way it sets off. And then he becomes the divorced dad. And people always think of the divorced dad like it's a modern thing. Like Lenny Henry in the UK used to actually do like a recurring skit on the divorced dad who would like put little cameras on his kids to spar on the new boyfriend and stuff like that. You always think it's like something that came out of the 80s, but here they are with Cary Grant as the quote-unquote divorced dad but in 1937, but they use a dog instead. And, you know, the way he sort of uses Mr. Smith so he can see what she's doing is brilliant. 
<laughs> I just think the whole thing is just incredible. Totally what a guy would do too. <laughs> it is totally what a guy would do, and he doesn't really care about Mr. Smith. He just <laughs> I was I was watching it going, Yeah, I could see a lot of my friends doing this. Yeah, I could see it. I love the scene when she calls the lawyer. Talking to the lawyer and the lawyer's just like, well, you know, marriage is a really sacred thing and it's a really important thing. And then his wife keeps coming into the room complaining about him leave, letting his dinner go cold. And he just keeps getting angrier and angrier until he's just like, will you shut up? <laughs> the accurate representation of marriage right in, in the background. Yeah. I'd love to when uh, Irene Dunn kind of cheats in the court and has the little toy for mr smith to go after like they're both calling to him and then she shows this little cat toy and he just runs to her immediately see my dog loves mr smith because i do watch this one quite regularly and he doesn't normally pay much attention but he does have a thing for mr smith he's asleep at the moment now i've mentioned mr smith he'll probably get up and start barking but it's a cute dog. And you kind of you kind of moved past it, but Celeste, did, did you guys get a vibe that Celeste had a little thing for, for Jerry? I, I felt like when she's talking to him, I, I just I felt a little longing there. Oh, it was so nice to actually see a black person in one of these movies. I think this might be the first time we've seen a black person this month. I think it is, isn't it? Even my man Godfrey didn't have any people of color, did it? Which is interesting because that talks about poverty. But it was sort of seemingly this exclusive down on their heel white poverty. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, I was hoping for more of her, but yeah, I think that she definitely has a, a caring for Jerry. Definitely. I felt that vibe and I'm like, oh, maybe we can get, I hadn't seen this in a long time and I couldn't remember. Maybe we'll take a turn. Yeah, a little bit different than the, uh, the maid in the remake, but we'll definitely talk about that later on. And then, yeah, Ralph Bellamy, Ralph Bellamy, who, this was, I guess, his thing at this time, playing this kind of straight man, buffoon-type character, because he plays a similar role in His Girl Friday, if memory serves, where he's just like, uh, I can't remember, was it Rosalind Russell? Like, uh, the new boyfriend of her, and he just keeps getting left behind while they're out pursuing the story, and he's just kind of hanging around. And here he is with this overbearing mother playing this i mean he reminds me a lot of the character that rock hudson would play when he was trying to take out doris day and pillow talk i was gonna say that the fake um rock rock hudson character like his 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 pretend alter ego like that texan was totally inspired by that and of course rock hudson's really good at it because he's rock hudson so it's like, yeah, I, I kind of feel sorry for Dan, but he does set himself up as a bit of a wally, doesn't he? And that mother is absolutely horrendous. That seems to be a theme. We did sort of weird, horrendous mothers last week, and now we're back again with a different type. There's there's some too much closeness going on between those two. I was really fond of Ralph Bellamy's character because to me, in the entire movie – it is a screwball comedy, of course. So everybody's kind of exaggerated and accented it in certain ways. But his felt like the most genuine character in the entire movie. I, I even though I knew he was going to get the shot, the, the short short straw. He's the one I was rooting for. He's the only character in the whole movie I'm rooting for. I'm even I'm not even rooting for the dog at this point. I'm like, you can't even choose which which person to go to. I I really liked Ralph Bellamy's character, and I'm just like, he's so genuine and kind hearted and. 
these people are kind of awful in, in many ways. And I just hope he works out. Okay. Yeah. He's very aw shucks and him constantly singing home on the range and speaking with that fake, uh, Oklahoma accent. You know, we've talked a lot about class this whole month with these screwball comedies. And this one, it's kind of interesting because Jerry and Lucy are kind of like, let's say mid tier upper because they've also, they've got the maid. They can afford to take vacation. She's got the singing lessons, all this kind of stuff. There seems to be like a little bit more of an upper crust when it comes to the, his new fiance towards the end of the film. And I would say Dan is up there, but he's like nouveau riche because he's got the the money now from the mines, but he does have that very much like the aw shucks thing. But then there's uh, Dixie Lee, which is the character that at one point um, Cary Grant is going out with, who is putting on, he asks her, like, how long have you been talking like Amos and Andy? And so she isn't a real Southerner, but there's this kind of like almost uh, looking down your nose at Southerners thing with this movie, where it's Bellamy as the, the Oki from Muskogee. And then you've got Dixie Bell, who is acting like a, uh, a Southerner. And then her being so not proper with her, my love is gone with the wind. And I think gone with the wind is very appropriate for that song, but that whole thing of them getting mortified by her, a scandalous dance I thought was just kind of interesting. It's a great scene. But Dixie and Ralph Bellamy's character, Dan, they are like the two sweetest in it. And like Aaron said, everyone else is kind of horrible. But but I like them because they're horrible. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes. I like them because they're horrible, but they all are kind of snobby and horrible and they look down on people and um they're kind of borderline sociopathic in using all these people in their, their marital, <laughs> their weird marital spat. But I don't know. I kind of like them as well. I kind of like them as well. But the but the lower class characters are the ones that feel the most authentic. So it has got that going for it. It's really the cast that makes the whole movie work. Because if you had anybody but Cary Car- Grant and Irene Dunn, I don't know that those sophisticated elites that – like to play ping pong with other people's lives would really, really resonate with people. I don't think you'd really get involved and laugh at some of this stuff because this could very much be, I mean, War of the Roses if you have the wrong cast. It just, it just feel very dark. Yeah, which I love War of the Roses though. I do. That I absolutely love it. But I was going to say, I think um, Cary Grant works, even though he was like Mr. Transatlantic. Deep down, he was always like Archibald Leach, and really, he was he was Ralph Bellamy's character. Like he taught, he would have taught like me, like hot fuzz before he went to Hollywood. Like, which is one of the worst accents you can cop for in the UK because it's it's the country accent. We're like the Hicks of the UK, and uh, it's got this like weird connotation of I don't know. Like we sit in the fields all day drinking cider and chewing on bits of hay and you know it's got this whole thing so he went from that to Mr Hollywood but deep down he was always that working class guy came out of poverty and you know and I think I think that's why there was something very earnest about Carrie that that's why you could get away but like certain actors you just you'd end up hating them if they acted like Carrie Grant 
like uh, Ray Milan doing the remake. Actually. Oh, what a prime <laughs> example! Ray Milan, but yeah, but he does not pull it off. He doesn't pull it off. Carrie never had arrogance, I think. And uh, in in the Pauline Kael essay, I and she talked about why everybody sort of responded to him in that way, and it was like there's something slightly passive about him. Uh, he was very good alongside very strong leading ladies. He never sort of overplayed his hand or swallowed them up. So women always had a lot of freedom next to him. He wasn't arrogant. and He was still very charismatic. But even when he's playing arrogance, it's like a, a lampooning of arrogance. It's like saying this is ridiculous. He wasn't smug. Uh, there was just something about him really likable, but this could have gone terribly wrong. I'm trying to think who would have been wrong within this era, and I can't think of anyone, but but it could have gone terribly wrong if you didn't have somebody with like Cary Grant. And Irene Dunn as well. Irene Dunn just always looks like she's having the time of her life in these films. <laughs> she's a little mischief maker, isn't she? I, I love the way she smiles and... You know, she's really clever. She's like the little mischief maker who stirs the pot. But She's kind of enjoying that uh, she's got Armand in the middle of it and like, oh, no. Oh, no. We didn't do anything. Because they've got this whole, like, urban versus rural thing, too. There's that whole part where it's like, oh, well, you know, it, it'll be weird. You won't be able to shop in New York. And, you know, just it'll be you out there on the range and all this. And. <laughs> Throwing shade at Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Ralph Bellamy, where it's like, well, you know what they say about New York. It's a good town, but I wouldn't want to live there. And they, how he and Cary Grant both say that at the same time. I was like, yep, you hear that all the time. And then, and then Grant setting her up for Bellamy's weird stomping dance that he's doing where I like I thought it was I thought he did a very good job. It's hilarious. It's I thought it was hilarious. A, he's a horrible singer. I thought his footwork was good. I was actually kind of impressed. And that she's out there in heels having to dance and that that it's just the most jumping jivinous number and then Grant just like, oh yeah, tell him to play it again as soon as he's over. It took me a little bit too when they are singing uh Home on the Range and he's just like, oh, yeah, I've never had a lesson in my life. How about you? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, the singing teacher. That's funny. I think there's also an Asian person in this movie as well, which is also remarkable that there's the uh, the Asian like houseboy that keeps him out of the, um, the, the recital that she's giving. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, that whole scene where it all comes to a head. With the hats and the hiding in the way. That is just one of the funniest things in all of Screwball. The timing and just, it is incredible. He's got that wrong hat on. The fucking dog is looking at getting the hat and then he gets into the room and the other guy's in there. And this, it, it is just so good. I have a thing about comedies anywhere. People go in the wrong rooms or there's like this misunderstanding or someone's under the bed. I just find that really funny anyway. But this is just sublime, the way it it pans out, and poor Irene Dunn just looks like she's going to have a nervous breakdown because it's just just not, you know, it's not just she's got one bloke in there. There's fucking two. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. But that's kind of where the movie makes its turn for me. After that, when 
when Dan's out of the picture and the singing teacher's out of the picture, it just it switches and it becomes this whole yeah, thing. Because they realize they still love each other, Mike. Where's your sense of romance? Well, I'm just saying because it really doesn't become him trying to woo her back. Suddenly, Carrie Grant's on to this other woman, this, what it was her name, Barbara Vance. And just that we get introduced to her through the newspaper was kind of an odd choice to introduce that way. And then that whole thing of them being together, um, Irene Dunn and Carrie Grant and how she keeps answering the phone. And it took me a while to realize that she was not doing it innocently, that she was really trying to set him up. And this whole thing of her being his sister now rather than, than anybody else. And I mean, I do really appreciate when she goes over and visits the Vance family, who, like I said, are the upper crust. They're like even more snobby than, than Carrie and Co. They're like they have more money. They have a lot more. They're like those people on the Titanic at the top sort of grabbing all the lifeboats, aren't they? (laughs) And since the romance, I mean, these these people, every relationship in here goes from zero to 60 in about three seconds. I mean, they, I don't, how do you have romance in this one, Kat? I mean, come on. I get that they're kind of in love, but they're they're like poor Daniel and then poor, poor, uh, even, even, was it Barbara? Thank you, Barbara. Yeah, but we don't care about Daniel. Daniel's he's nice, but we don't really care about him. We care. Carrie's been hurt, and he goes off, but he really loves her. But he's hurt. That's why he's gone. Oh, I cared about Daniel. I cared way more about Daniel. I'm like, she's sitting there when he was at the when he was hiding behind the door, and she's he's just trying to get a kiss, and I'm just like, oh, this is horrible. This poor guy. It's just living the worst life. And then later he finds two guys in a room. And I'm like, this poor guy is going to be mentally destroyed after this. I mean, the psychological trauma that he's going to have to deal with. He's never going to leave his mother. He's never going to leave his mother because she's warned him. Never going to get away. I love how he uses the same line that Norman Bates will use about how a boy's best friend is his mother. Psycho's the sequel, the pseudo sequel. This is what happened to him. He went back to Oklahoma, he opened a motel, and look what happened. Oh, it's... Carrie is heartbroken, then he goes off with that other woman who's not very nice, because they're too posh, and... She wasn't bad. She wasn't... She wasn't bad. She was a little jealous. Her family aren't very nice. They're kind of snooty in their little snooty drawing room. That's is in their drawing room. But, you know, he goes off, and, and then old Irene realizes she's fucked it up, so... You know, I love the the fact that they get back together because you just, I wanted them to get, I am I the only one who wanted them to get back together? No, no. They need to go back together. Yeah. They deserve to torture each other for the rest of all time. I just feel bad for the people that they left in their wake. It- I don't. I, I think maybe I'm a massive sadist. I just, this is revealing to me. <laughs> It's like Bill Pullman in, uh, it wasn't French Kiss. What was it? Was it IQ? It was one of those movies where Meg Ryan was like really meant for this other guy, but Bill Pullman was like the nicest guy in the world. And it's like, oh boy, he's got hay fever. Get the fuck out of there. He's no good for you. And it's like, what? Yeah. Meg Ryan would break men's hearts like crazy in these films. And I kind of feel like both of these, like, you know, they are awful people. They are leaving a wake of all of these heartbroken people, whether it even be Dixie Bell. I don't know how she felt about stuff, but I don't think she was aware of very much at all. Was she? 
She was she was on her she was in her own film. She was having a great time. Is what she was doing. She gave a great performance, and they're all basically calling her a stripper. I'm like, hey, she's doing a great job. You leave her alone. Well, that's the thing. How Irene Dunn embarrasses Cary Grant because she then starts channeling Dixie Belle. She does. She was comes great. in and does the Gone with the Wind uh, song. And basically ruins his chances with this posh family because she's a floozy and comes in and, and starts calling Jerry a secret drinker. Jerry the Nipper. <laughs> Jerry the Nipper. This, I think this very much illustrates what an unhealthy relationship they have and that they definitely do deserve each other and that they'll probably end up as like a true crime story at some point 20 years down the road. But they love each other and they have a lot of fun. So, you know. I think it comes back to that thing about about women being sexually aggressive in these films, though, and that's something I really appreciate is, you know, again, I know we've discussed this with my man, Godfrey, because you've got three very sexually aggressive women in that. But even in the just early days of the code where they're trying to sort of get rid of any female sexuality because it's considered so dangerous and potentially corruptive, and they're sneaking it all in in the screwball with women that are like got so much agency. They're they're independently wealthy or they're career women. They know what they want. They know who they want. They have control over their situations with men. They're not this like sappy, broken hearted woman who sort of go. You know, Irene Dern in this has got spunk. You know, she's going to fight. And uh, and you always get the sense that she doesn't entirely take their divorce seriously. She's just trying to teach him a lesson, like she hasn't completely. Because as soon as she realizes she's he's gone, then she suddenly like, oh okay. But I really appreciate that because you don't then from the forties onwards, you you tend to see a lot less of that in Hollywood film. You just it just comes. It's it's just it was just considered too subversive. But here you've got, like, you know, a married woman who runs around with these, uh, what would you call, Armand. <laughs> I wouldn't say he's a singing teacher, but that seems like a euphemism for something, even though he, he does teach song, Like, he hangs around these rich women. And, you know, they've got this life going on there. They've got the whole socialite thing going on. And there's a lot of anarchy and freedom in there. And by 1940, we, when we get to, like, Gone with the Wind, women have suddenly just put fucking pennies on or they become these, like, really sappy sort of mooning after guy types, you know? They're almost saintly. And and it's like, I, I just this age was explosive. It was absolutely explosive. I know we said this all along. How they got away with after this, I, I have no idea. But how they got this through the Breen office, I have no idea. Because some of it is very suggestive. Especially this whole idea of this guy who, who routinely, you know, ha- actually has like a whole kind of industry going on. How he like goes away from his wife with this tanning thing set up. Like this is a really, this guy lies. Makes <laughs> an industry out of lying. They both do, but I don't think it's ever... I don't think the implication is necessarily that they are both having affairs. I think, to me... No, it's ambiguous, isn't it? Yes, it's a, it's very ambiguous. He's off. He just wants to have time away from her. She's off doing things with Armand. But the impression that I keep getting because of all the private conversations that she'll have with Armand and that he has with his friends are, are that there's nothing really... There's no 
sexual hijinks going on. They just needed a break from each other, and neither one of them are too mature enough <laughs> to have a real conversation until near the end of the movie when they have one at Aunt Patty's to have a real conversation about who they are and what they want and and why they are the way they are. They just it's just a lack of communication is really the biggest problem. I don't see them as out whoring about either one of them. Outside of that, though, if you look at kind of press from around that era, the, how women were targeted, you'll fall into that era of being the perfect housewife, talking of Doris Day, but Doris Day is like initial type. And this was just so risque for the period. It's like, yeah, you can be married, but you can have your own life. You can have a singing teacher, you know. And, and so from like a moral point of view, it really is encouraging women not to put up with men's shit and to do what they want. And even if you've got married, it doesn't mean that you have to subscribe to certain things. So it was so refreshing. And then you often get people who go, oh, fashion films, you know, they're just so, they were sexist. It's like, have you seen any 30s films or pre-code films? Because that is not how women were in them films ever. Uh, you know, that was like a manufactured thing from Hollywood when they wanted to clean it up. Seeing that in this and also this um, raising up of intelligence in women. So it's not just that women were very glamorous or beautiful. They were actually really clever and intelligent. You know, the fast paced dialogue, like Carrie Grant just cannot get one over on Irene Dunn. She every single time until the whole, you know, hiding in the bedroom thing but but before that she's one step ahead of him and she's just she's just laughing at him she's just like look at him he can't keep up uh and then you just don't see it again till maybe the 70s or the 80s it just completely disappears and women become like a whole other thing i love these women though you know i absolutely love them the fact that they were prized for their intelligence as well as that, like, you know, it wasn't, oh, you just look a certain way. All of the women we've talked about, Stanwick, you know, they're all just absolutely brilliant. We haven't done Rosalind Russell yet, though, have we? And she was an, she was another one. Carol Lombard. I mean, oh, my God, they were so good. They were so good. Just for that tiny little window they were allowed that was like, what, five years maybe and then it was like, no, you have to go into these like sappier roles now. <laughs> well, this this film wasn't even really a traditional marriage. I mean, you know that that in itself was was quite a difference from the era. Just just the idea that we have a marriage that well, a one is going to end, and then you immediately jump into another relationship, which is another thing you just don't do. Um, that you have some kind of control over your agency, both of you do, in terms of like, you can just leave the marriage. I mean, that was kind of really frowned upon throughout all up until like the fifties or sixties. You just don't leave. You don't, you don't just get divorced because things aren't working out. You know, you, you make this work, you sit with someone, you stay miserable and you hate your life. That's how marriage works. That's how they were up until probably the sixties. Like the lawyer, he kind of represents that, that thinking. So they've got the 60 days after they meet with the judge. And then in that 60 day period, yeah, she's going out and eventually gets engaged to Ralph Bellamy. And then he ends up getting engaged to this other woman all within 60 days. 60 days. So fast. My God, man. You can't mess around. You can't mess around. (laughs) Don't want to waste the years. Can't waste the time. 
And then to your your point about the, the the risque nature of this film, that the whole end of this movie takes place with two bedrooms and a door in between that doesn't want to stay closed and all of these things happening with this door. And then that kind of weird thing with the cuckoo clock with the that's so weird that was so weird thank you for saying that because that was so weird i'm watching i i hadn't seen this movie since i was a kid like i said and i i still loved it and i'm like i i still think these people are awful but i still like the movie and everything else then it got to the cuckoo clock and i'm like what the hell was that who came up with that why is it here it's dumb it's just dumb so i could see mike why that would just throw you off and be like i'm done this movie's stupid i can't do it the whole last scene is just kind of weird, like the fake cat with the door. And yeah, it was just really bizarre. And then, of course, you can't show him getting in bed with Irene Dunn, even though they're married. They're still married at that point. Maybe it might have been past midnight. Yeah, but they weren't married to not even married. Mark. But he's with the girl. He He's getting he's with Barbara or whatever. I mean, my God, he just left her house and she just made a fool out of him and her and you just let you spent the last how i don't know 60 days so how long did you actually spend with her because you're in the papers for it seems like months or whatever that's crazy yeah that's another thing just like the timeline i was like i almost want a ticking clock and every once in a while it's like okay well we've got you know three days left or you know Today's the last day. I love how Mike's doing the calculations, like trying to figure out the actual timeline. Well, there's like the montage of them having a good time and stuff. So I'm like, okay, well, this must be over a few day period or maybe weeks. The end just feels odd and a little abrupt. Yeah, but they can't show the action, can they? So they always did that, like, a bre- they get into a clinch, and then bang, like, titles, you know? <laughs> that didn't surprise me in any way, shape, or form, because all films of this era, or most of the films of this era, of, of the 30s and 40s, and probably close to the 50s, like, they just, they just ended. I mean, they would get to the point, they had a quick resolution, and just ended. At least you knew they, they had ended. Now, everyone knows I'm not like a marvel person, but not to get off track, but I took my son to see that Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Verse thing. I didn't know this whole thing. Like, the credits goes, we go to walk out. The whole theatre looked like like we just killed someone. I didn't realise you have to sit there until the fucking end of the credits. Like, we're like, we've broken some... It's like, I've been here for two hours already. I just want to go. So we were, like, forced to sit there and watch the whole of the credits. At least, you know, 1937, you knew it was over. You could get out. You could go. You know, this thing. Going through and those credits were fast, too. Yeah, nice, fast credits. We don't have to get this thing that goes on. Everyone's staring at you if you even try and move. And it's like, no, you've got to wait here for some thing at the end. It's like, what the fuck was that about? <laughs> but they still make it a little fa- I mean, they have a real conversation. The only real conversation they've had this entire movie at the end. And, you know, are you sure, Jerry? No more doubts? Yep. Good night. Bam. Over. What the hell, man? Have <laughs> so fast. Show the cuckoo clock again. Why? <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm surprised because, you know, in normal uh, everyday credits from this time, that cuckoo clock effect, that would have taken like 150 people in Malaysia to put together. Can I just say the 90 days thing? My second husband, I did marry him after knowing him for six weeks. So... I'm here for the 90 days, people. 
Oh yeah, you can no, do a I lot in not, ninety days. It didn't. I'm not casting aspersions. But... <laughs> yeah, but did you get divorced, and then one of you almost married the other, another person, and then you almost marry another person, and then you end up coming back together within the span of uh, sixty, whatever the number was. Even though people got married super fast in these movies, that whole thing was just like, what is wrong with your psychology? But they all had to be married so they could actually fuck, though, didn't they? So there was that as well, that urgency. You didn't have people like, oh, we'll be engaged for 15 years because they weren't going to be getting it. Yeah, there's no premarital sex, so you can't try out that cow before you buy the milk. Everybody's got weird marriage stories. Like, I never knew the other day. Uh, I found out that after Dorothy Stratton died, that Bogdanovich moved in her mother and little sister, and then he ends up marrying the little sister who had been living at his house. Adds an extra level of weird to an already weird story, doesn't it? You got to move on. That's what this movie taught us, is you got to move on. Well, speaking of moving on, let's go ahead and take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier, about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. You 
you obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider, now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. Hello, this is Will, a writer of three films plus a Christmas special. And this is Kevin, a writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV. Okay. We're screenwriters by day, podcasters by night. Yeah, okay, Batman. (laughs) And we're the hosts of The Best Bits, a show where each episode we pick our favorite film scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. Such as best fight scene, best sex scene, and best Tom Cruise running scene. Why should I know these things? Do you know them? And we have the world's first podcasting AI to keep us on the straight and narrow. Say hello, Bodbot. Hello. So, if you're looking for another film podcast to subscribe to, why not check us out? The Best Bits with Will Collins and Kevin Lehan. And Podbot. Yeah, it's good crack. <laughs> Irish crack. So if you want legal crack, subscribe to Best Bits Podcast. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney took a shortcut and something happened to the car. Well, it really did. We finally had to leave the car and walk until we came to a motel. A motel? Well, darling, don't look so worried. It was approved by the auto club and it really wasn't bad at all. Yes, get the shutters. They banged all night. I'm taking a slow burn over a fast man. And he's the last man you'd ever suspect. You've got to be modern about this, man. You've got to be modern. I'm modern, Mr. Stewart. It's just that I'm not that modern. It was great while it lasted. It was real. It was grand. It was fun. All right, we are back and we are talking about The Awful Truth, which had been made... This play had been adapted twice before, I believe it was 1925 and 1929, and unfortunately, those versions don't seem to be available anywhere. Um, I looked high and low, and to the to the point where it was like, oh, well, the 29 is for sure a lost film, just like, for fuck's sake. So many lost films. I think studios in those days, so they remade everything, didn't they? And they would just get rid of whatever they'd put out before i remember trying to find a blue beard's eighth wife there was a 20s version with gloria swanson which is lost and i went through all the kind of old 20s press and i actually found a 
a photograph of like the stage set with the wives hanging and stuff. And I was just like, what? This is just so upsetting that this film is gone. But it's the Hollywood way, like the 90 day, they'd be pushing in a new remake and people go, oh, I hate it. They remake everything now. No, they've always done that. <laughs> At least we keep the old ones now. When you have those debates or those conversations with people and they're always like, I hate how Hollywood does that right now. They're so critically bankrupt or creatively bankrupt. They can't make anything new. I'm like, that has been the Hollywood way since forever, man. I mean, this one alone had like five or six total movies basically out of the same story. And then you had your radio dramas and all that stuff as well. So it's like, all right, yeah, that was just the thing to do. And there would be multiple radio versions. So it wasn't like, oh, well, the Lux radio version was, of course, the best one of all these. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So this one had a musical remake, kind of like how uh, a song was born. This one was called Let's Do It Again from 1953, not to be confused with Let's Do It Again with Sidney Poitier and Bill Cosby, which I kept, like, as I was out there looking for the trailer, I just kept running into that film, a, f- a fantastic film. And I would say one that is better than this one. This was directed by Alexander Hall, stars uh, Ray Meland as Gary, not Jerry Stewart, and Jane Wyman, a hot number Jane Wyman, oh my gosh, as Constance Stewart. And then you've got Aldo Ray as Frank McGraw, who rather than being an oil driller, he uh, has a basically uranium mine up in Alaska. And then you get Valerie Bettis as Lily Adair, who is basically playing that Dixie Bell character, but in this movie a lot more. Um, I found some of the things that they did for this to be kind of interesting. Some of the changes they made, there's no Aunt Patty, but then the maid takes up some of the Aunt Patty role. I can't say it's good. I got 20 minutes into this. I, I, and then, uh, Raymond Ant got on the piano and I lost it. And I wanted to punch Raymond Ant in the face. And I also wanted to punch Jane Wyman's hair because it looked like she'd stolen Claudette Colbert's hair for some reason. And it just bothered me. And then I messaged Mike to say, why do you keep tricking me into watching Horrible musicals as like either remakes or bloody sequels or there was the whole jism thing. Like it's becoming a thing, Mike. Why? Why'd you do I I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> I just couldn't. I love Ray Milland as well. I'm sorry. I love Ray Milland. I love Aldo Ray and Jay Wyman. Not in this film. Not in this film, I don't. I thought Jane Wyman was actually great, even though way too many musical numbers and that African one was just weird and super uncomfortable. You should be thankful because, man, it was a a little uncomfortable. But that's the thing that I actually liked about this one was that Aldo Ray ends up with her at the end. I was like, finally, there's a little bit of payoff. So it was like basically if he would go with Raymond Ant in this. Oh, he's awful. He's, I love, he's a piece of shit. Yes, I love Ray Milan. His character's a piece of shit. His, I think he's trying too hard to be Cary Grant. He's like Cary Grant. It's like the budget version, like the Walmart version of Cary Grant. <laughs> what he seems like he's trying, it doesn't work at all. He just comes across, across as a smug prick through most of the movie, in my opinion. I think Milan did like arrogant and smug really well. And he was so good in those early Paramount comedies. You know, playing that type, that's like actually Ray Milan's type. 
And then, you know, as often he does other stuff, you know, like works with Hitchcock and Billy Wilder. And that, again, that smugness sort of works in those roles. It works in those films, yes. It does not work in something like this, where as soon as he started speaking, I was just like, fuck this. What? <laughs> I'm messaging Mike going, how old is Ray Miller? I even had Mike looking up his birth date. Because the other thing is, and and this isn't an ageist thing because I'm like nearly fifty, but he's too old for the flipping role for a start. How are you supposed to believe that they haven't been together for decades? Like what's been doing? And he's too aggressive and he's too arrogant. And I was trying to might like stay with it. Does some interesting things with class later on. Then he started singing, or was that him singing? That didn't sound like Ray Milland. That was not him singing. No, that was somebody else's voice. And I was like, fuck this. Mike, I'm turning it <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I didn't know it was going to be a musical. I didn't realize that going in. It's just like, hey, I just found this remake. And, and I put it on. I'm like, Mike, it's a fucking musical again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It says in the credits that it was Ray Milan singing, but there's no that way. That was not Ray Milan. It didn't sound anything like it. No, not at all. I liked some of the changes that they did, some of the characters being kind of, you know, put together. Like I said, Nellie the maid being that Aunt Patty character. The, the hat gag is there, though it's different. There is no dog. What they're fighting over kind of is a piano, a very special piano where you can actually change the pitch with a lever, which I thought was kind of a neat thing. Though as soon as the movie does that, he, he does that. It's so weird. We're sharing the piano. <laughs> so weird. It didn't make any sense because she's not interested in that, even though she wants to get back into being in musicals and he writes musicals. So at least the music in the film was a little okay with some of that. But yeah, it was just, it was a little strange. And uh, the Lily Adair character, Valerie Bettis, I don't know. She was like a, some sort of a lioness or something. And just that whole scene was, yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. And towards the end, when, um, uh, Jane Wyman comes in and starts doing that same act, I was like, Oh boy, I have to turn this off because I'm too embarrassed. But I did fast forward to the end and saw them together. And I was just like, okay. So there's none of that, that bedroom stuff going on either side. Also, an hour and a half for a musical is a short. So where was this? There can't have been much story in there. There wasn't a story. It was the same story. It was the same movie, except there's a piano that they should have called Mr. Smith at some point, honestly. And <laughs> and it's just a lot of songs taking up space. But I feel like this was a remake in the middle of the musical craze. They were trying to like just merge the two is what it feels like to me. Yeah, I sound like I hate musicals. I don't actually hate musicals. It's just the ones that Mike tends to say, oh, hey, got this uh, thing. But at least this one wasn't like two and a half hours like Jism. Yeah, the musical Bollywood remake of uh, Double Indemnity. So <laughs> Only Mike can find this, something like this. Yeah, I would have rather have compared this versus the 25 and 29 versions, but... Yeah, this 53 version was just, it was kind of strange. And one that probably doesn't really need to be seen by that many people. I did like Aldo Ray in it. And I love Aldo Ray. I love I Aldo. like when, 
He tries to help the moving men out by moving the piano and basically just flips it over because he's so darn strong. (laughs) And like I said, I do like that he and Lily end up at the end because of that whole, you know, leaving all the bodies in the wake thing that we were talking about with the awful truth. I like that in this one, he ends up with, with Lily, the dancer and that it's like, Oh, okay. So they're in, and the way his hair is all messed up at the end. It's like, Oh, they just freshly fucked. So they should be okay with this. Uh, everything should be good, but otherwise you really don't need to see this movie, folks. You don't have to track it down like I did. It's Technicolor as well. Normally, any, put anything in Technicolor, and I love it. Jane Wyman was very good in this. Like I was very, I thought she was great. He stole Claudette Colbert's hair for some reason, though. Like I don't know why, but she just it kept it. I just noticed it very early on, and then I don't know. Just it was all wrong. Perhaps it was just the atmosphere of the whole thing was was wrong. I like some of the supporting characters too, like Leon Ames and Tom Helmore. Both of those guys, whenever they show up, it's like, okay, we're in for something good here with these guys. And Leon Ames as the brother of uh, Ray Meland. I was like, oh, okay. Him going around trying to track him down at the beginning. And ra- rather than Ray Meland having been out in Florida, down in Florida, he pretends that he's been in Chicago and basically he's just been tramping around. <laughs> hanging out at jazz bars and playing music. And that's where we meet him is in a jazz bar where there's nobody else other than the band and this uh, Lily Adair character singing and, and kind of messing up her hair. But why can't you tell your wife that you just need to go play music? Makes too much sense. It does. It does. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm taking off a couple days in May just to go up to Ann Arbor to look at uh, files in the library. So, you know, that's how I party when I go out of town. Is that what you're that's really doing or is it party. wink, wink? You're going to go get a... That's <laughs> what I'm really doing. That's yeah. what Mike's really doing. We know that. <laughs> you, you won't come back with a tan from there. This was a this was like a weird point in Milan's career, though, because like he'd already... Like, first of all, he, he sort of starts off as one of those Paramount stars, like, and he does a bunch of comedies. He worked with Mitchell Lysen loads. He he's so good in those Lysen comedies, which I think are like underrated as well. And then he works with Hitch and he and he does the Lost Weekend for for Wilder as well. And just amazing, you know. I mean, all the people he worked with, Preston Sturgis and just all these amazing people. And he gets to like sort of middle age and then he goes into that like by now he's got into this like weird section of his his kind of B level but still Hollywood. But then he goes oh he starts doing shit like the man with the X ray eyes for Roger Corman and so turn it the thing with two heads. Well and at some point he loses all of his hair and I don't know when that is. He just sends several of these crazy exploitation films by the end. Is a weird star, and then you think, God, you know, he was, he was in like the the Lost Weekend, and the, that thing with two heads is just the most insane. That's the one where he plays a racist, and he gets a black other head, isn't it? He gets put onto Rosie Greer's body, and yeah, this was a weird period for him because he had just done The Thief the year before, which is a great film where no lines of dialogue are spoken. And then, yeah, let's do it again in 53 and then dial M for murder in 54. And then he moves 
I think by this time he was moving into television with the Raymond Lange, uh show. Yeah, he's at a weird kind of crossroads in his career at this point and, and sort of turns up in some odd, you know, not particularly great stuff, but then still does Darlem for murder in, in the middle of that. Well, and then his last 20 years of his career was all TV stuff. I mean, he went to TV movies and TV shows and bit parts. And it's kind of sad because he was a, he's a great actor, minus this particular movie. Oh, he was brilliant. No, he was. I'm not necessarily smuggling it, but he was great at that. And a lot of those comedies that he did, like like The Gilded Lily, for example, with old, what's his name? Fred McMurray and Claudette Colbert. And he's like the cad in that. He's like the British cad type. Like he was so good at that. Uh, but he doesn't, he's not particularly uh, sympathetic or earnest, is he, for like a character that you're a. Uh, Oh, he's an easy living, I guess. He's a rich boy who sort of rejects his father, and um, he's not a comedian. That's that's the thing. And this, the... no, he is. He's good in that, but he's always a straight man. He's always a straight man in those Paramounts. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he's not. He doesn't have the physical com- comedy uh, chops that Cary Grant has. He doesn't have the delivery that even Cary Grant would have. I mean, so he's very much more suited to either dramatic parts or the straight man or at some other role. He's just not, this is, doesn't fit him. This movie doesn't fit him. I think his best comedic role is probably the major and the minor. Yeah. I'd say that another wilder film actually. Yeah. But yeah, in that, I mean, he is more delivering those lines so we can see Rogers react against him. His name comes up on this show so many times because we talked about him uh, when we were talking about Rosemary's Baby because he ends up playing the Roman Castavet character in Look What's Happened to Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> oh, God, I sat through that once. That was a, that was not good. That was not good, was it? No, he played a great villain in Columbo. He was really good. Um, I think he murders somebody and plants them in a uh, greenhouse. Yeah, the greenhouse jungle. Plus, he was also the more sympathetic widow, widower, I should say, in Death Lends a Hand, which was like the second uh, full episode of the first season. He did a lot. Of, I mean, he was. I, I remember he was in Hardy Boys. I think he had a long career. I really love him in Lady in the Dark. Talking to Mitchell Rise, and if you ever seen that one, needs a restoration with Ginger Rogers. And and she's like a magazine editor, and he's like this smug sort of little prick that she hates. But they, but she ends up having these weird fantasies about. And again, it works because he is just playing this very arrogant. You know, she can't get the better of him, and they got great chemistry. But the whole thing's got these bizarre technical. They look like a Mario Bava film, like gel lighting fantasy, and all. And, and it's only on this really cruddy. I've only ever seen it in cruddy quality. It's like, why well, isn't somebody? restored this but he was around for so long i read his biography a few years ago and he was like a welsh boy talking to like working class he was like from wales like a mining place and uh, he went off to the army and then when he was on leave he just met these actors i think in london uh he never wanted to be an actor but he's just kind of like hey i like what they do I'm just going to hang out with them and, yeah, do acting. So he just kind of became, like, instantly became an actor. I think because he could write, no, he could shoot a rifle. So he got in his first film. He actually started at Rank and then he went over to Hollywood. But he didn't even want to be an actor. And then he ends up, like, with this really long history, like, so much TV film and everything. 
just doing weird at the end, but he <laughs> didn't give a shit by then, I don't think, did he? Did like William Shatner in that, like he just keeps on and on. Yeah, he worked for 60 years, so that's wild. And, he, and he's had a whole career in the army before that. Is Well, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right, we are wrapping up Screwball Month with a look at Frank Capra's Arsenic and Old Lace. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Kat and Aaron. So, Kat, what has been keeping you busy as we plow through these Screwball films? I just did a commentary on Sean Baker's Red Rocket, which is out by 84 and Lionsgate, which is brilliant, talking of ridiculous masculinity. Check that out. And... Oh, and also Severin have just announced they're doing another Christopher Lee box set with all this weird European work on. And so I got to do a commentary for Dracula and Son, which is the last time he actually played Dracula. And it's a French film and it's just amazing. It's just amazing. So that's coming out soon. 
And Aaron, what's new with you? Uh, well, as always, I do the Hollywood Outsider podcast available in your app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. I just got back from the South by Southwest Film Festival recently. We did an entire uh, episode on all the films seen there, which are over between 25 and 30 films and episodics that we saw and reviewed on that episode. So you can find that at the Hollywood Outsider. Uh, also, I still do the presenting Hitchcock, which is we are going through every single Hitchcock film um, from silent to, to the last one to kind of just revisit, go through some of the history, discuss what we think of the film now in modern times, et cetera, et cetera. And that's presenting Hitchcock. And you can find that on your apps or at the hollywoodoutsider.com as well. Well, thank you so much folks for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening to inquire about advertising on the projection booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Lovely moon. 